0: Thank you for listening to the Leadership Under Fire, Humanizing the Narrative podcast. I'm Patty Murphy. The original broadcast date for this episode was June 4th, 2020, but the interview you will hear with our guest in this episode was recorded in early 2019 at a Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance Summit, which took place in Annapolis, Maryland. Jim Russell, a retired U.S. Marine and Chicago police officer, was one of several summit guests who shared their perspective on navigating adversity and loss in lethal settings. The episode begins with LUF founder Jason Bresler and I discussing our reflections shortly after the 2019 summit. The LUF team will be hosting another Leadership and Human Performance Summit in Annapolis on April 21, 2023. This will be LUF's first national summit since the arrival of the COVID pandemic in early 2020, the emergence of civil unrest during the summer of 2020, and following Russia's invasion of Ukraine in early 2022. Jim Russell will again be a featured guest at the 2023 summit. We anticipate that he will discuss the ways in which the world has changed in recent years for leaders in high-risk industries. We thought that the insight and encouragement that Jim offered in 2019 might serve as a fitting prequel for those who will be attending the 2023 summit and benefit those who will be hearing conversations from the summit in the coming months on the Leadership Under Fire Humanizing the Narrative podcast. If you're interested in attending an LUF event, visit leadershipunderfire.com for a list of upcoming events and to join our mailing list. Now, on with the episode. Jason, as you mentioned, anyone who speaks to you or perhaps listens to the Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance podcast has heard you mention the name Chief Warrant Officer 5, James Rassell. To recap, who is he to you and Leadership Under Fire?
1: So Jim and I served together in Fallujah in the same infantry battalion uh, at the height of the insurgency in Fallujah, 2006 into 2007, and uh, he was a godsend. I mean, the man – I learned more from Jim Roussel in six months in Fallujah than I learned at the U.S. Naval Academy in four years. And I – that's not a knock on my mm-hmm. Naval Academy education. That's just a, a credit and testament to who who Jim Roussel is. Jim and I have been very, very close now for, for 12 years. And I still just – anytime I have the opportunity to just listen to Jim speak, I, I'm continuously learning from from Jim's perspective. He's a treasure when it, when it comes to – a, a mentor. Uh, w- when I think of the word, like I said, when I think of the word resilience, I think of Brendan Cauley. When I hear the word wisdom, I think of Jim Roussel.
0: It makes a lot of sense that he would be included in this summit. And back to my nerves during the summit, as we had a photographer at the event who happens to be a defensive end in the NFL. Do you want to share a little more information about that?
1: <laughs> yeah, R- Romeo Aquera who if you're a Detroit Lions fan or a New York Giants fan, you're, you're certainly familiar with them. Or if you're a Notre Dame fighting Irish fan, you're, you're certainly no, no stranger to the Aquara brothers, Romeo and Julian. So Romeo is many things. He's actually, you've hosted him before on the mm-hmm. LUF podcast. But in addition to being an NFL defensive end, he is a photographer. Mm-hmm. He wanted to serve as the photographer for, for the summit in, in Annapolis, so it's it's hard to it's hard to be inconspicuous <laughs> when you're built like Romeo Acuera.
0: Mm. But he did a masterful job, and um, he did take some time during the break to give me some feedback. And he told me, "Don't look so nervous."
1: <laughs> well, how does that translated into self-talk? Right? So you say he's to yourself, like, "Don't be nervous." He looks,
0: yeah, he like cool as a cucumber, like tall as a giant. He's just like, "Don't be nervous," and I'm like, "Well, that just pushed me over the edge." <laughs> And so I decided to acknowledge it during this episode. Then something surprising happened toward the end that gave me a little confidence. So you'll hear it without further ado. Let's get started.
1: Sure.
0: All right, everyone. Help me help you get the most out of this experience. Let's take our seats. <laughs> it's hard. <laughs> Ooh, sorry. Thank you. Welcome back. Hope everybody got to stretch, move around a little bit, take maybe some fresh air. So some of the feedback that I got during lunch from people was, don't look so nervous. And uh, our next guest is held in the highest regard by some of the people that I hold in the highest regard. So disclaimer, I'm nervous, (laughs) but I'll try my best. Okay. All good? James Russell retired as the chief of staff for the Chicago Police Department in 2017. Prior to that, Jim served as the executive officer, Area Central, with the Chicago Police Department until his mandatory retirement from uniformed service in March 2014 at the age of 63. Jim served with the Chicago Police for 36 years, serving most of his career in gang tactical units. He's also a retired Chief Warrant Officer 5 in the United States Marine Corps Reserve with 39 years of service in infantry and intelligence assignments, including three ground combat tours in Iraq's most volatile district. He also serves as a senior mentor for the Leadership Under Fire team. Jim, it's an honor to have you here today. Thanks. So you've served in a number of important and senior roles, both in the United States Marine Corps and the Chicago Police Department during critical junctures. What's your personal definition of resilience?
2: <clears throat> well, I, thanks to, this, to today's classes, I, I have a, probably a bunch of uh, terms which I didn't have before today to, to help me to understand that. Uh, and I thought some of the answers that came from the room itself we're perfect, and so I, I, can't, I can't top that. Uh, but I, I think one of the things I'm gonna get, get asked about is about lethal resilience, and that's a little different. Uh, and lethal is, means dead, and that's forever. <clears throat> and so as first responders, we have a unique profession because that's the environment that we work in. And that sort of resiliency is, is extremely tough. And then I'm gonna back it up a little bit more for this definition and say we have to understand that we operate in a civilian environment and, and, and there are casualties also, and that's forever. And then we have allies that we work with in the military and they have casualties. And uh, so those are all numbers that we have to keep in mind at all times and when we're talking about resiliency, talking about training and preparation, if we don't understand the scope of the, of the environment that we're dealing with, and how catastrophic that is, then we're not doing ourselves or anybody else any good. So uh, it's it's. I, I applaud everybody being here. These are really tough questions. We were just talking about that before we got started. And then as the years go on with this uh, leadership under fire, you're you're getting the finer point on the pencil to understand. Uh, we as leaders in these different organizations, what can we be doing different and better so we can cope with this? Because Quite frankly, if you stumble into these situations and you haven't done any preparation, planning, training, uh, it's gonna make it even worse. It'll take you even longer to respond from it. And quite frankly, in my years of experience, many people don't. They really don't, they just quit. They just shut down because they weren't prepared. They'll tell you straight out, I never thought it would be like this. And then we've done something wrong by allowing them to be in this Pollyanna kind of frame of mind.
0: One thing we were talking about before we got started was organizations. So what is your, um, how do you think resilience impacts organizations as large as the Marines and the Chicago Police Department? Organizations consistently navigating and managing risk um, in its many forms in order to promote security?
2: Yeah, I I think across the board, the the units that have outstanding leaders that have really put their heart and soul (coughs) into, into being prepared, uh, get the job done. They accomplish whatever they're supposed to do, and I liked the previous class. It was excellent. The doctor, she's still here, but it did a great job talking about the mission. If you haven't taken the time to analyze your mission statement, I mean, really take it apart and look at it, and then cost versus effect, and say, in at least an environment where we're going to be suffering, uh, you know, casualties, uh, how does this mission actually weigh up? Uh, and if you say it's not worth it, I mean, that's a, it's a good thing to have that conversation before you know, you're in, in the middle of it. But there, it's, the mission statement does become like an anchor point for you to go back to and say, this is our mission, we serve and protect. And we have to understand how we go about doing it. And if we do it and we end up killing three civilians, I don't think we're, we're actually filling, fulfilling our mission statement. Also in the military, it's locate, we'll okay close with and destroy the enemy. It doesn't mean kill everybody, it means destroy their will to do something. If we do this and it breaks our will and we're not capable of doing anything anymore, then they've actually won because we didn't prepare for our job in the first place.
0: I like the fact that you used the word anchor there given our theme here this weekend. During the course of your... (laughs) (laughs) During the course of your careers, uh, you've worked with a considerable number of different leaders and commanders. I want to acknowledge my condolences. You lost someone today who was very impactful to you. Colonel Smith uh, were there any others uh, and if you want to talk a little bit more about him yeah. that had a profound impact in, on you and why yeah
2: and, and so that that's so I, there's a couple there's a lot of them. I think the whole aspect of mentorship mentorship is is essential in any organization that you take the young guys or girls and, 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 and you're them the time to make mistakes and learn things. And ask questions and build upon it with the idea that they're the ones <clears throat> that are really carrying the load. They're the, you know, so the whole idea is it's not the top down that really makes it work; it's the bottom up. And if you haven't given them the tools to be able to do it, you're setting them up for failure. Your organization up for failure. So, two little stories uh, that were critical, and I've used them my entire career. With I made sergeant and uh, with the Marines, and. Uh, the fall of, uh, of 72, and, and we were we went and celebrated in Thailand, uh, you know, getting those three stripes. And so we're up, we went out drinking, and I'm having a great time, and that's all I'm thinking about, how lucky I am. And a uh, master sergeant came over to me and sat down, and he said, uh, congratulated me, and he said, you know what those stripes mean? How do I know? And so he says, uh, he says, this isn't my first time over here. I was here a few years earlier. He said, I was a staff sergeant. I was in charge of the security around the MAF headquarters. And he was in charge. He had the cooks and the drivers, the administrative people, the techs, the bandsmen, and he had, a- had the perimeter with them. And he was doing what he was supposed to do, putting machine guns, lanes of fire, OPs, LPs. And a warrant officer uh, who was in charge of those people came to him and yelled at him because they were working all day long as their jobs as mechs and techs and, and cooks. And he says, you get them out playing grunt all night long, and you're killing them, and they can't do it, and, and you've got to stop doing this. And he said, That's, this is a job they gave me to do. I only know one way to do it. Uh, so he goes, Let's, if, you, if you keep this up, he says, I'm going to write you up. And uh, and we'll, we'll takes you know some stripes away from you. A few weeks later, they were overrun, <coughs> with tears running down his face. He told me the name, every single person killed, how they were killed, and where. I was sober, I forgot everything about my party, and I understood the, the concept of responsibility. You're responsible, or you live with the guilt. At every level. So uh, to to his credit, he ended up uh, retiring as a sergeant major uh, with the 1st Marine Division. A a very impressive man. And for him to be able, I mean, this is 40, close to 40 some years ago. And it's still, uh, I can remember it, you know, that clear when he told me exactly what my responsibility was as a sergeant. The other thing is the phrase, do the right thing. As years goes on, that gets harder. Pretty simple when you're a sergeant, what the right thing is. But as you're moving yourself up in the chain of command, doing the right thing gets tougher and tougher. But as long as you have that as a as a fallback position of your understanding what you need to be doing, because that's your number one responsibility is to do the right thing. It's not making sure everybody comes home. It's not solving the other things that mean some whatever the administrative thing in the moment. It's do the right thing. So you've got to find a, a system. Of understanding to put it in the context so that you know what it is so you don't live with the guilt of not doing the right thing and having a bunch of casualties that you have to deal with for the rest of your life so I thought it was a great advice for a guy at his first step and I, and so that was a critical point second one 15 years later I'm working for a lieutenant colonel by then I'm a warrant officer and I think I'm pretty sharp and uh, he tells me that uh, he finds my work to be marginally acceptable. What, you know, and, uh, but, he, he, uh, but he had some impeccable credentials. He was a platoon commander at uh, Khe San and Wei. As a company commander, he was with an advisor for the uh, Vietnamese Marines. He was at the Easter Offensive in 72, and uh, when they got overrun from North Vietnamese, came across the border. The only time they used tanks, he had the wounded uh, regimental commander on his shoulder, so he was actually commanding this regiment that was fighting, and, and they actually held him. He called in naval and air fire. Uh, as a major, he was a, a Royal Marine Commando liaison. We, we only send the very best guys over to command Royal Marine companies. As a lieutenant colonel, he commanded a battalion for three years with the Ninth Marines. His his, his understanding of the actual aspects of how to do the job. He, I've never met anybody that was any better than him. So and while, while I'm working for him, he says to me, uh, Jimmy, you want to know the definition of combat ready? Well, this is Yoda. So I, I get out my book. And I'm going to write this all down. And he said, whoever shows up, I'm laughing. You know, It's like a joke, whoever shows up. When you think about that more. He's absolutely right, and for first responders, it's everything. Whoever shows up, it's the first couple minutes that make the difference. That's the specialized unit that's not gonna be there for an hour and a half, not the super duper pros that you have that are training someplace else. It's the first responders that are gonna be there in three to five minutes. They're gonna make the difference, they're gonna carry all the weight, And if they haven't been prepared or trained or led accordingly, you're going to have a disaster and you're going to have lethal consequences for both civilians and for your first responders. So he said a mouthful (laughs) with one little comedic phrase. And once again, they go, that's something worth putting in your your mind back uh, to to think about.
0: That is very profound. (laughs) To flip the perspective a little bit, you deployed to Iraq on three separate occasions where you were a huge advocate for partnering with the local tribes during a time when many of them were adversarial to the US government. My understanding is that you encouraged Marine commanders, leaders, and troops to try to see the conflict through the eyes of the locals, which I'm sure is very (laughs) difficult. What are some of the lessons about resilience you gained from them, and is there a particular experience where they demonstrated
2: their resilience, that's yeah, resonating with you. And so there's a lot of different uh, you know points to this. But regardless of the environment, the problem we have across the board is that uh, people think that all the answers are on some computer screen. So they spend all their time looking at the computer screen, whether it's at work or at home, whether, it, it, the, the answers aren't there for first responders wherever you're at. What you want to know is out there on the street. Everything you want to know, all those questions you have, the people know. And if you, the more time I, t- I tell people, turn it off, get out of the car, go talk to some people, and you're gonna learn something, And regardless. So one of the first operations we did in Iraq, we were gonna go do a night operation, and one of those seven-ton trucks flipped over Uh, into a canal and a bunch of Marines spilled into the canal with all their equipment and the local people came out and jumped into the water and saved them and pulled them out and and recovered all their gear. These guys are ready to shoot everybody in the village because that was their mindset. And you have to go back and say you're missing the whole point. I don't care where you are in the world. The majority of people are just nice people. They're just trying to make it from day to day. You know, so they were very hopeful, and that started to make people think about things differently. So it doesn't make any difference where you're at, and once again, if you take the casualties into place. I've had people tell me in both the military and in the police department, I can't tell the difference between the good people and the bad, and I gotta tell you, don't do me any good. You have no value to me whatsoever. You have no value to yourself, you know what I mean? So it isn't the, the idea of of of, of have doing things and not doing it in concert with the people that live there uh, is, is foolish, it's ineffective, uh, and off runs And then on the other hand, once you start working with them, it just changes things. Like, we were trying to deal with Al-Qaeda for a long time. I finally sat with some leaders, and, and, and during the course of the conversation, I said, well, what do you want? And they said, uh, we want you to leave. I go, well, we want to leave, but we're not leaving until we don't deal with Al-Qaeda. And they said, well, we could take care of that in 60 days. Okay, that's a deal, let's do it. And I'm not kidding, in 60 days, in the area we were at, there was no more Al Qaeda, because what, they knew the neighborhood, they knew who they were, and uh, it worked out really well. And the other thing that was interesting about the conversation was, when I talked to the chief of police, uh, I asked him what he wanted, and he said he wanted three things. He wanted intelligence, he wanted snipers, and he wanted aviation. And I keep it in mind at all times when I tell people, I said that's what he wanted. Everything else he would do all the heavy lifting himself, and he did. So I think I'm a big advocate of human uh, intelligence, I'm a big advocate of community policing. Uh, I think if you're not going down that road, you're missing the the point. And that goes back to your mission analysis. When you're looking at your mission, if if you're not looking at it in in that kind of framework, if if the mission is just from your perspective, Uh, you're going the wrong way.
0: Dissecting that lethal environment a bit more, you spent several decades fighting crime in Chicago, where you spent the later years of your career as a commander and then the chief of staff. Um, We've talked about your deployment. On numerous occasions, the units you were serving had personnel killed in them. And in many instances, the operational requirements and tempo did not permit much in the way of operational timeout, which we were talking about earlier, and stand down. What sort of mindset did you find helpful after losing men that you cared for, but in an operational setting that required you and your unit to continue operations?
2: Yeah, and there's a, there's a number of different facets to that. And I'll go back to, to the one again. You can't just look at our casualties and not look at the larger ca- casualty context. So one of the things methods that I would use, every time an officer gets injured, uh, you go to the hospital. A supervisor has to go there and be with them until until they leave the hospital. And so when I was a sergeant, I would go and and I'm not talking something catastrophic, but you know he's banged up, he's in the hospital, the rest of it or she. And, but then I would ask him a question at some point and say, does it hurt? <laughs> they look at me kind of like you're an idiot, but they, they would go. They went, yeah, and I would go, yeah. Look around the room. Everybody in here hurts, and it's all real blood. The problem is, we start to think it's tele- te- you know, movie blood. They're not real people. They're they're just they're not they're not us. And so you have to be able to cope with that. And it's the same wherever you go. Uh, the Iraqi police suffered casualties like people will never know. However, however many that we had, they had far more. And they didn't have the support services that we had, but they were our allies. And it just is something, and people would forget that. And some, somebody said, say, well, I don't like them. I don't want to work with them. Well, I'll tell you what, they're bleeding. They're bleeding really hard. So that really affects us in being effective in our job. Now we go forward to our context. How do we handle for ourselves? And I think if you've done a good job, and you've, you've got good, good leadership, and they've trained well, and we're equipped well, it's, it's gonna happen. I mean, it's just, when you think, some commanders would wanna say things like, my goal is not to have any casualties. Well, everybody has that goal, but it's gonna happen. And, 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 and so if you haven't dealt with the fact that you're gonna have casualties, then you're gonna just crumble and cr- un, un, under that time. But if you are prepared for it, and the people believe in the mission, and then you go back and you do your after action report and you go through, and maybe there are some things that we've done wrong. And then you gotta be honest about it. I'm not saying that to broil somebody for, for making a mistake, but realize that this was a procedural error. Something that we did that we don't need to do that, but if everyone knows that that's the organizational sentiment for Colonel Mark Smith, the guy who passed away today, he had been fighting cancer for about eight years. He was a battalion commander when I was there in 0405. He did a tremendous job. Absolutely tremendous. The morale of the battalion was sky high. We took a ton of casualties and people wanted to know why the morale was so high. They believed in their leadership. They believed in what they were doing. We were showing real differences on the ground. It was it was called a triangle of death. I mean, what do you the place was as bad as it could be, you know what I mean? But he actually found it could inside in it, find the enemy, you know, locate close with and destroy their will to fight. Which he did, so to his credit and his memory, uh, I think that's the best thing you can do for him. Is uh, if you love them, train them hard. If you love them, make sure they've got the right equipment. If you love them, tell them the truth, and uh, that'll make it make it work.
0: Drawing on your experience, uh, are there any differences between absorbing loss and failure at the team level and then absorbing loss and failure at the organizational level?
2: I, I think they're similar but different. Uh, so, Bernard Fogg was a, was a writer during Vietnam. He wrote a book called Street Without Joy. It's a definitive book explaining Vietnam. And he actually explained the riddle of counterinsurgencies. And he asked people, you know, how long does it take to train a good sergeant? And, it, and the answer is gonna vary between eight and 10 years. How long does it take to kill him? About 10 seconds. How long does it take to replace him? So, as an organizational thing, we start realizing, you know, casualties are something that are much harder on an organization than you than you fathom. You know, so and you have to be able to take that. So it's it's at the team level, it's really hard. But the, what what I found, and, and the other thing is, I am very pro the millennials or whatever you want to call them, the young people. They I, you know, the thing is, I think they get a bum rap all the time. Uh, I don't think we gave them a very good you know deck of cards to start with. And I think they've been handling it really well. And then with the military and the police department, when they see these young kids come out, I'm always hearing people complain about them. But all I see is kids who want to do a good job are trying their heart out. And a lot of times they're not getting the leadership they should be getting, or they're not getting the training that you, they should be getting. And this is a good place to be kind of talking about that. Is, so if they're not living up to our expectations, we should probably look in the mirror at ourselves and see, ask ourselves, what are we doing that uh, isn't resonating with them?
0: Does being resilient as a leader at the team level equate to being resilient as a leader at the organizational and strategic level?
2: No. With each step, it gets harder, Uh, clearly. And the other thing is, so what I learned with each step, there were more skills that you needed to be able to understand and, and, and more aspects of the job. And there's a Peter Principle. There's people who are really great at this job, and, and then you promote them to something else, and it doesn't work out. And then you sit and go, wow, we had such high hopes. We thought they, they would be great. And a lot of times, I would find, if I went back into their background, they missed something coming up, and so they have a blind spot. So, and that blind spot gives, makes them unprepared for this next job. So when I talk to people all the time, and when they get these promotions, I go, go to a fast place that's got a lot of work to do and learn every aspect of the job. There's a lot of guys that get this promotion, they go to a sweet spot, and, they're also, and all they're doing is thinking about the next promotion, and you say, you haven't taken the time to learn this job. So the, the other aspect is, in addition to the mission statement, and the leadership becomes a question of how long does it take to learn a job? Whatever that job is. If you haven't put the time in, then you're not gonna be able to do it, and you're gonna be a failure. And if you as the leader don't know how to do the jobs, and that's where I'm saying, as you're moving up, you're, you're, you're actually doing everybody a disservice. You don't understand how any of these mechanisms work. So it's, uh, for like if the new lieutenants on the police department, and I'll say, make sure you go to a fast district that has a lockup, because not every one of them has a lockup. But if you don't have a lockup, you're missing a third of the job, and that's critical aspects. And, and you're, you know, critically uh, responsible for everything that goes on there. But you'll have guys who become a, a chief and they've never been a, a district commander or they've never been a watch commander. It's like, wow, does so you wonder why they're doing, make such bad decisions? They don't understand, it. and the military is the same thing. How often do we go to war? We don't go that often. And so, therefore, you've got this huge learning curve. Can we really afford two years where everybody does on-the-job training? The answer is no. I mean, that's why reading is so important.
0: We're going to get to that. Yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, before we do, I've heard Jason speak on numerous occasions about your ability to candidly challenge a senior commander, sometimes a very senior commander, particularly when he was committing to a course of action that you felt would be detrimental or maybe one dimensional in his thinking. Did you have a framework for when you would challenge and when not?
2: Yeah, I, I think, you know, and, and, and uh, trying to put it in the context. so. If, if we're going to do something, and it, it, it's, it, it, it violates some of those basic tenets of the, of the mission statement, and the potential of it is a failure, particularly in the, in the aspect of uh, being lethal, across the board for civilians and ourselves, and they haven't actually thought about it. You know, the problem a lot of people, they want to get an A on the term paper. You know what I mean? They, they want to get a medal. And, uh, boy, those are bad reasons for a boss to be making those kind of decisions. So I had the joy, I like being an intelligence officer, I really enjoyed that job, because my job is to go and tell the boss the truth. Not what he wants to hear, but what he needs to hear. And I think every boss is different. That's, That's what you need to do. So you need to develop that relationship with them on whatever basis is to go and see them and say, you know, like I said, don't don't spin information. Report the facts, and make sure you got it all written out, so you got that going for it. So after a while, you go in, and you, your relationship is you come in and say, "Okay, I want to tell you something that you don't want to hear. I, it's my responsibility to tell you. So here it is. Boom, boom, boom. You can see their face just going like this, their eyes thrown in their head, and then I leave. And you'll see about two hours later or less, they'll call me back in and say, "Jim, thanks a lot." And, you know, it's, it's not easy to do that, but you can't wait till the worst, worst thing in the world before you go in there. And you can't go in there like every day, saying the, the sky's falling, because nobody's gonna listen to you, but uh, you've gotta be able to be a, a, an honest barometer. And this goes to the other aspect. Any boss at any level that surrounds himself with all yes people, you're doing yourself a huge disservice. You gotta get people around you that, you know, are gonna tell you the truth, and they give you a fresh set of perspectives, you know. And so it comes up a lot. Uh, and so a, a, a phrase I've been using a lot lately is, when's the last time you changed your mind? about anything? Because if you haven't changed your mind, you're probably wrong. Because in this era, there's so much things going on, technological changes, societal changes, environmental changes, political changes. You gotta be reassessing all this stuff all the time. And, Occasionally, and I know I would find myself, I'd be sitting in a room, we would be arguing and arguing, and then when the thing would be over, it's still grinding in my head, as I'm walking back to my office, it hits, and I go, I'm wrong. So then I would make a point, go find that person walking in their office and said, I, you, you're right, I'm wrong, we're going to change this. And sometimes they start apologizing, I, I go, oh, no, you shouldn't apologize. I mean, this is why we do what we do. This is why we have a process to go through these different aspects, to challenge the conventional. We may have done this 100, for 100 years. But that doesn't mean it's right. It doesn't mean that it, you know, it's still right. So it's uh, Abraham The that book about the uh, team of rivals. Great book. And what was it? He was a genius because why? He surrounded himself. Every one of those persons that was on his a cabinet thought they were smarter than he was. In fact, they knew they were smarter than he was, but he managed to get them all work together, and he would listen to them when he gave them advice, and he could also get them challenged to do a better job for the organization.
0: This is leading right into my next question, which centers on the moral imperative. The scientific community in recent years has given us much insight into the psychological and physiological effects of trauma, but much less in the way of moral injury. It's probably safe to say that sometimes leaders do the right thing, and are inevitably punished for the outcomes um, beyond their control because of the political, legal, and media implications. What counsel do you have for leaders in their preparation for moral dilemmas where they have to make a choice between what's right and doing things right?
2: I think this, well, I guess we could take, you know, uh, I don't want to be overly dramatic, but this is almost taking the Nuremberg trials and saying, See if you were one of the generals at the Nuremberg trial and you said, I was a good officer and I followed every single rule that was given right down the line, blah, 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 and at the end of the day you say, that's not what we need you to do. It's very important. If we don't have a moral imperative of what we're doing, we're a failure. And so I think, and like I said, and then the other thing that goes by doing the right thing, and if you fail in that doing the right thing, I'm telling you, it's 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 a gnaw of guilt it's like a rat that's in your stomach. It's going to eat you alive. You know what I mean? Especially if you've taken casualties, and you can't, you can't, uh, you know, balance that out. This is, this is what we did. This was the cost of it. And the reason I did it was because so and so wanted to take a bridge because he wanted to write himself up for uh, Legion of Merit. And you know, I, I mean, that's a, that's a legitimate conversation. It was a bridge, and every time I turn around, they wanted to do a parachute jump to take the bridge. I go, we've had the bridge. We, I drive over the bridge. I can go see the bridge. Why am I rumping to take a bridge? Because it'll look good in the citation, plus you get another little star on your jump wings. They go, "It's ridiculous, you know what I mean? What if, we, just no, we're not going to do that. It's just, but that's where people get themselves backwards about what's the mission that we're trying to do, what's the end state, what's the consequences that could be potentially be dealt with.
0: What counsel do you have for leaders who might one day find themselves morally injured after having done what's right?
2: You know, that I think, and that it came up, you know, you've got to be able to, uh, ahead of time, uh, assess, you know, you know, where's your, where's your pivot point? What, you know, what's, what's, your, you know your, what's your internal, you know, I know what mine it says uh, <clears throat> and so I, I apologize if it offends anybody. As long as I'm square with God, I'm good. Because that I really can't deal with. And so uh, you can look at them, and I have had people say, Are you afraid of this? I'm not afraid of this or this or this. I'm not afraid of any of that. I am afraid of God. So, but I'm not saying I always have the answer what's, what's right to do. You know, I've been in some pretty tough ones. But uh, usually that's for the introspection. You sit there and go, Okay, the old master sergeant, you know, what's the right thing to do here? And I'm going to stick on that one. now, uh, And then I have to go back and say, so in the political environment, when they come in and tell us they want us to reframe the messaging, I go, mean, what are we reframing? The fact is, three people were killed, and this is what happened. That's the facts. I'm not reframing anything. Now, sometimes they'll say, we'll go down the hallway. We'll have somebody else reframe it. You can do that. I'm not reframing it. You know what I mean? And the point is, for the young kids that are out here working for us, they deserve to know the truth, you know? And that's a whole other thing, when you say, well, you know, we, 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 you know, we're not gonna tell them. We're not going to tell them. They're putting their lives on a the line. They have a right to know, we should tell them. We, what, are we keeping, what are we keeping this? It's amazing that the information that they need to know, we don't want to tell them. And then information that we shouldn't be telling anybody, we can't shut up about it. That's the truth, I mean, so uh, Osama bin Laden, they were tracking him everywhere he went because of his sat phone. Had a guy go to Washington, uh, Fort Meade, and they were giving him a tour, and he said, Osama bin Laden, here, look, you get him on the map. We can see where he's at every single minute. Within so many hours, Osama bin Laden heard that, took it to sat phone, threw it away, never had another electronic device within like three miles of him. That's why it was in Pakistan all this time. That's a true story. It's like, hey, dummy, what are you? that you should not have told anybody. But a lot of these other facts and figures, you know what I mean? This is the number that people should have. And so uh, it's like crime stats. I go, why don't we just put all the crime stats out all the time? Here they are. Why are we just put them out in little blurbs, you know, where we craft it? You know, say, well, we had a 22 reduction, but what is it? You're, what are we playing with? The numbers? We're going to talk about burglaries because burglaries are down. But we don't talk about, you know, rapes and rapes are up. So just put them all out because it's the public. We work for them. What is this? It's just, a, and so it's across the board. You know, when you're in those moral dilemmas, you don't always win those arguments, but if you come down where you're at, you can live with yourself, and more importantly, for the people that are around you, you're going to gain their respect too. You hey, look at a training officer that says, "Hey, look, it takes this many hours to learn how to do this." Okay, yeah, but we don't have the time, so what we want you to do is give them the answers to the test. You know what I mean? And we'll have it done in 30 minutes, and they sign off this document. You go, I'm not signing anything. I mean, the point is, if they need to, it's a Lecture, demonstration, application. That's what you're trying to train them to do. So at the end of the day, can they really do it? If they can't really do it, then we didn't train them. We just set them up for a failure. You know, I've got, got a piece of paper, Says so they watched a movie today, and that means they've been trained on some really complicated aspect. So all of us have to be there and be ready to push back and go, count it out. I mean, we're not really helping anybody by doing this. We're certainly not helping as first responders in a lethal environment, which I said, and understanding the lethality of the environment we have to talk about.
0: Thank you for that. And I have another tough one for you. Okay. The active shooter threat and instances of mass violence appear to be on the rise in terms of both frequency and resulting carnage. One could argue that the uptick in violence requires leaders in all industries, not just the military, but also in education and in the media. Annapolis Gazette, mass shooting right over here, uh, not only take physical measures to prevent or mitigate a mass violent attack, but measures centered around the psychological aspects. How do you think those who don't have a tactical, military, or law enforcement background can enhance their psychological resilience?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, thanks, I like it. It's one of those I, I like talking about. So it's usually like a group, Like let's say right now now we're a grammar school or we're a high school and you're the parents and we go to a community meeting and we talk about, which I love doing, to any, when something happens, usually when there's an active shooting incident, then they all want to have meetings and so then you say, okay, let's take this, the, this event that occurred right here, the facts from this event, and just template it onto your school. Would it be any different? Would it be better? Would it be worse? That's, that's our start point. But then usually as you're going through that, you know, people start getting involved and they start going, it's one thing to have a plan, but if it's a plan that's just in a nice binder that sits in the principal's office, that's not any good. That's not, a, you know, it's a plan that the first responders and people in the school are going to respond to in three, five, seven minutes. So when you say an active shooter drill, that means that they're killing people right now. Bam, 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 bam. And every time you hear a bam, somebody's dropping dead. That's what they're doing, and they're doing at school, why? It's an easy target. They're kids, you can mow them all down. You know, they don't, they don't pick things, and then you know, they either commit suicide or they surrender. So that I means it's disgusting, but do we have it? It's happening across the board, and every time you see one of these, one is more upsetting than the other, so it's, it's an aspect that we're living in, so then we need to make ourselves harder targets. So, when it starts with the physical security, electronic security, the different measures, how you do a lockdown. And then you get to the point of the lockdown. And you say, well, if you're going to do a lockdown, you better have like good doors that have locks on them. Not doors that door just are glass, they'll just come right through the door. You know what I mean? And so you do the lockdown. Why are you doing a lockdown? Well, you're doing a lockdown because you're trying to buy time for the first responders to get there. It says that the longer the time clicks, the more people are gonna be killed in the active shooter. So, somebody in the audience will always, will finally go, wait, would would it be better if there was somebody in the school that had a gun? Then I always pause for effect. Hmm. Yeah, I think it would. Why? Well, he's got a gun and he's shooting students and now you're not waiting for the response time for the reverse responders to get there, it's already a, and more importantly, the person has a gun, you know who they are, they know who you are, you've already worked out these procedures. One of the best tools for an active shooter is having everybody connected on all their phones. We all have these things right now, and I can do text messaging, I can have a map, I can see with my GPS, where everybody's located. I mean, it just gives you some, but now we take all these things that we just talked about, and we say, so now what should we do? Well, let's do an exercise. You know, when the school's closed, on this, on this facility, you know what I mean, and, and, and walked the dog. So let me go back to 9-11. And I, and I re- apologize, because I don't remember the guy's name. But if there was a, a you saw, seen that movie called uh, We Were Soldiers. We Were Soldiers Once and Young was the name of the book. And on the cover of the book, there's a picture of a young lieutenant in Vietnam in 1965, when the first kid went to the Oshawa Valley. And when he got out of of the army, he got hired as a security specialist at 9-11. And his nickname when he was a lieutenant was hardcore. He's a hardcore guy, you know, boom, boom, boom. So he got this job of doing the security for the people. And he ran counterterrorism drills once a month for the company he was with. And they practiced, you know what I mean? Hardening the targets, locking the doors, and evacuating the building every month. When that happened, every single person from that company got out of that building alive. Every single person. Only person died <clears throat> was him. He went back in to check that everything was clear. And, and, and the building came down. All of them, yes sir. Thank you, thank you. I mean, the man's a hero. But why was he a hero? He goes, he did the right thing. You know, like, what's so important? You know, when is this gonna happen? Don't worry about it. We got other things to do, we don't have to practice that. You know. So the whole point is when we're looking at our mission statement, the worst case scenarios, if we're not training for that, we're not doing our job. And so, thanks for that. I'm just saying, it's, there are examples over, over and over and over when people are stepping up and doing the right thing that makes a big difference. And hopefully in our organization, it's never gonna happen. But the point is, it's gonna happen somewhere. And I don't know which one of these exercise, you know, whether it's, it's Las Vegas, you know, or the or, or one down in Florida, or the one in New York. It, 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 every day there's another one, and one's more sickening than the other. So we have to deal with this is the environment that we're living. There's a lot of different aspects to it, you know. But we need to make ourselves harder targets, and everybody. Once again. If we're not looking at it including the civilian casualties, which is a huge part of it, then we're not doing our jobs as first responders, being able to provide them the safety and security we're supposed to be doing. I want to talk to you
0: about reading and resilience.
2: Oh yeah. So I'm a you know, all the people I'm a big a big reader. I don't read I don't read fiction, very little fiction, because nonfiction, most people write fiction because they can't write the nonfiction, because they can't say things about people in real about where they really messed up or were evil, or so they write nonfiction. They change the names to protect, whatever. And uh, but if you read the nonfiction, it's so much more gritty and real and, and truthful. And the other part is, is for, as first responders, we don't deal with this stuff all the time. I mean, the first time you're dealing with this whatever environment, you'll probably have to be. You know, if it's through reading, that's good. If you take it to heart and then, once again, template that onto your environment and say, if this were to happen, you know, I mean, like, when's the last time we had an incident when it was really cold out or really hot out when we had flooding or fires or pandemic? I mean, it just goes on and on. You don't know that. You've got to go back to like 1920, 1918 to pull up the pandemic effects to look at. And I'm telling you, I've been through some of these drills and it's pretty silly stuff that we're kind of talking about. You know, that's just not gonna work. You know, what I mean, I think we should be looking at some other aspects this to do a better job. But only through reading can you become a, a better professional. And similarly, with the exception of Nathan Bedford Forrest, every single I know person I know, going back all the way, you know, uh, forever and ever and ever, studied everything they could find. You know, every book uh, on everything. On, on, on the military arc. nobody. There are no gifted amateurs. And that goes to the thing. that So the team leader, yeah, maybe you can get away with that. But as you start working your way up, it's a profession that you've got to make the investments and in, in the reading stuff. Because you're just not going to be able to realize that. And then the nice thing is, a lot of times, they're completely honest about the mistakes that they made. Uh, and when you're looking at that, you, like you make those notes, and you say, boy. Everything that they did wrong, that's what we're doing. I have got to go to Israel like three times. I really, you know, I got to go to London also to talk about security things. And I let, what I enjoyed about both of them was they were completely forthright about the mistakes they made. You know, they would say, Jim, yeah, we read that same stuff. We tried. We don't do it. And this is why. And, and going back to the active shooter thing, the first time I heard the whole active shooter explanation was from the Israelis. Because what they did, the first time I saw it in the training, I was, because it defied what we do. We would take cover, we would assess, and then we would move towards the sound of the guns. They run as fast as they can right towards the gun. And they go, Jesus, that's nuts. And they went, no, we've only got so many seconds to get this over with. And he's not looking for us, the armed person that's coming, he's looking for innocent victims to be mowed down. Because if we don't get this done, You know what I mean? He's just gonna have more victims. And he says this through the school of hard knocks. Now it's one thing for you to say, which we currently say in our federal documents, that's what we're gonna do. Let me tell you, you cannot do that without training. You can't, it's impossible. It's just, and we've seen that happen. I'm so, yeah, so these, these are all great questions, and then the other thing about the police and fire, we don't operate in separate silos, so we can not train in separate silos, and we can not have documents in separate silos, and period. I mean, it's just gotta be, everybody has to understand it, and then what's really critical is if we, if we use the same terminology, the same communications devices, the same plan, and we practice it on the same ground, I'm gonna tell you, I'm feeling pretty good it's gonna work. If we don't, I'm gonna tell you right off the say, ah, it's not gonna work. If this is the first time you're trying to do it, it's not gonna work. Because in a stressful situation, and you're gonna to try to execute this ballerina move, no, it ain't gonna happen. So it's so a Grossman quote, uh, you don't rise to the occasion, you sink to the level of your training. So whatever you're talking about, if you haven't trained for it, particularly in a joint environment, Uh, You sit there going, we're kidding ourselves. I love it. What I really hate is when we put together a joint dog and pony show. We handpick the units, they sit there for three days, they practice walking the same things, they do everything. They bring a bunch of media people in, they videotape all of this. We pat ourselves on the back, what a great operation. And I go, I don't think so. This is what I think. How about we do this? Let's do an unannounced drill. I'll let you pick the time. I'll give you the stopwatch. We'll go there, we'll get on the radio and say, this is a, an unannounced drill. I want these units to meet me here now. And once they get there, you tell them it's a scenario. But just start with the clock. We'll be waiting a long time. Uh, wait, wait, wait. You got the equipment? You know it operated? And then you can just go, okay, take that plan and throw it out. Let's go back to here. This is what's really going to show back. And that goes back to the very first thing. Uh, whoever shows up. <laughs> Not the hand-picked people they did for the training scenario, but the ones that you actually saw show up at, you know, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, you know, on a Thursday, at whatever, you know I mean? I'm telling you. And if they say, well, we can't do that, you got to say, man, we're not taking this serious. Not take, you know, I used to do that to uh, people at the airport because that was under my little pur- purview, and I had a lot of fun with it because I would put the training aids out there. You know, so then... I would call in a suspicious package. I would see a long it for somebody to show up. They'd walk up and, you know, then I would go, <clears throat> it is a bomb. I put, it is. What are, you, what are you supposed to do? Now they, well, call for a dog. They call for the dog. How, sit there with a watch. How long does tape take for the dog to get there? He get, the, the dog alerts. And, and then you, you can see the handler. He's going to go look in the bag. I go, <clears throat> you're dead. You know what I mean? There is a bomb. You know, how do you, I, I put it there. I had the training aid. I put it there. Call for the bomb tech. Now we wait even longer for the bomb tech to get there. He finally shows up I look at him and say, no, there is a bomb in there. I said, well, you can do three things. You can blow it in place, you can take it apart, or you can move it. He goes, well, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna try to take it apart. I said, well, you shouldn't, because you're an idiot. You don't know how to do that. I said, so, you gonna blow it in place? He goes, yeah, I'm gonna blow it in place. I go, look at where you're at. You can't blow it in place. You're doing a terrorist job for it. You're blowing up our own airport. He goes, I'm gonna move it. I go, great, move it. He goes to pick. I go. What you're gonna pick it up? <laughs> and then you go. Oh yeah. Go, but so then we put the a timeline, run this all the way back, which is like a long time. And he say. So, I think this is not working. I think we need to do a better job, so that we're we're actually doing what we're supposed to be doing. To get and that goes for everything. You know, like I said, with the, the casualty handling in the military. Until we have real casualties, we're terrible at it. We do everything wrong. And you tell everybody. You know. You just. You just. You don't pretend like there's not gonna be any casualties. You know, and so you have to, and then the other thing, I guess one, I, this will be the last point, I'll shut up. I don't mean to keep rattling on, but for your leadership, you know, it's a, a lesson for all of us. Myself, a couple, You, if you really take this to heart, you become a micromanager and you try to do everything. Well, you gotta cure yourself of that. Because what you do is, as soon as, as soon as you do the exercise, you go, bang, you're dead. Don't say another word, sit down. Okay, you guys do it. If they can't do anything as a leader, you suck. You set them up for failure. Well, you did, you set them up for failure. So you gotta be doing it for both yourself and for all your, but usually your best guys, girls. You know what I mean? Because they're so, you know, and you have to go, and you have to do it to them, and it's hard. You say, no, I just pulled you out. In fact, I'm gonna send you away. You can't talk to anybody. And, and if they can't... Now, if they perform like like rock stars, give them all the credit in the world, because you have to plan for you not being there and preparing them for those you know lethal... Uh, and then you have resiliency, because you've trained for your replacements. To, and the other thing which is, which is really nice, which you find out, gee, the only person that was slowing them down was me. In fact, these guys are smarter than I am. They move faster. Really, it's just like you go, oh. So you just have to break those, those things and, and allow them to, to make those kind of things happen.
0: Circling back to reading. Okay. I said I was nervous at the beginning of this talk. Right now I'm wildly excited because I read an article in The New Yorker about Rick Ruscola from Yes we just talked about, and I took a screenshot of the last paragraph, and sometimes I go back and I revisit this passage, because it helps me come back to the role that I play, and it's a simple role, but the end of the article, a friend is explaining to the reporter what he is, or what he plans to do when speaking with Rick's wife, and he says... I've tried to tell Susan this in a way, but she's not ready yet for the truth. In the next weeks or months, I'll take her down here and we'll take a walk along the ocean and I'll explain these things. You see, for Rick Roscola, this was a natural death. People like Rick, they don't die, old men. They aren't destined for that. It wasn't right for them to do so. It just isn't right by God for them to become feeble, old, and helpless sons of bitches. They are cert- There are certain men Born in this world, and they're supposed to die, setting an example for the rest of the weak bastards we're surrounded with.
2: Yeah, it's a wonderful. Yeah.
0: So, with that, we'll wrap this up. You guys can have your discussion, and then we'll open it up to the
1: floor. Mm-hmm.
2: <clears throat> Should
0: I go back? No, you're going to stay here because then we're going to open it up to the floor. <laughs> Okay, everyone, I'm sorry to interrupt. I want to open it up to the floor. And don't worry, we're going to have a social tonight. So if you have more questions or things you want to talk about, you're going to have more opportunities later on. But for now, just to um, take advantage of Jim's time here. Does anybody have a question for him? Anybody want to come up to the mic?
1: Okay. Good afternoon, sir. Uh, the, the table as a whole had two questions. Uh, the first of which was uh, the majority of the people in this room right now are statistical outliers, and that we're here and we have enough invested that we have a vested interest in optimizing human performance. How would you recommend personally uh, engaging engaging your team once we go back to our respective areas? And then a caveat to that would be: if you are not a chief warrant officer five, and people do not have to listen to you, you yeah, you are yeah. not at the top of the totem pole. Yeah, yeah. What are the ways in which you found most effective to manage upwards and lead from you know lead from the back? Yeah. Rather than from the guy in the front I like right the question.
2: Seat. Okay. So, uh, so the, first and foremost, whatever level of supervisor you are is a cool thing. I mean, I was a sergeant for 18 years, so I can talk about being a sergeant. Yeah. Sergeant job, I got down. And we always in patrol, and it was always in, in really tough places. And so all the creative things you can do, you can train your team as a team. We were just talking about that here at the table. You know, so I could train people with no money. And you can't, I mean, like, so, like, if I were to teach people in the military how to do call for fire, I got no money, airplanes, artillery, the rest of it, I could just get a pair of binoculars, a couple of green blankets, some cotton balls, you know, and we could practice call for fire all day long in a in, in the roll call room, you know, in our barracks. Doesn't cost anything. I can train everybody to be good at it. So when we finally do get that, they can learn how to do it. I could train procedures as my team in the hallway of the station, or even better, I can I could set up to hold my team down for a certain amount of time at some location and tape it off for crime scene tape and practice getting out of the vehicles, moving from there you know, to the doorways, clearing the hallways. I can do active shooter drills with nothing other than my own people, you know? And I'm telling you, is that contagious? We were talking about things being contagious, good attitudes, bad attitudes, that's extremely contagious. We talk about the firehouse, you come back to, you know, from the after the fire, you're doing your hot wash up, you're doing your after action drill, you make that a formal thing, which as a you know, first line supervisor I did all the time, and they would all get used to it. The first time I can remember you, you try to do it with them, they're only listening to you half-hearted, but when they find out you're actually listening to what they're saying and you're writing it down, or yeah, I can actually turn them something, and then if they want to expound on it and say, yeah, listen, you can go back and you can write something. So I can remember a Marine Corps thing. I give them these little after actions to fill out. I get it back. Somebody took a booger and put it right on it. So then I announced to everybody. I'd I'd like to thank the guy who gave me the booger. They all laughed, but then they knew I was reading them. If you're reading the after actions, and you're actually making that work for your team, I'm, you're going to be, you got the, you'll have the hottest team wherever you're at. And everybody wants to be part of that team. Why? Because they're all included in it, and they're learning how to do stuff. And then, when they come and ask you, "Can we do this? Can we do that?" Can do. Almost all the time, you have to go back and say, "We can do that, but this is what it's going to take, and you're going to have to make an investment." Because they always make it so extreme to the out to the end. We have to have all of this super, you know, a million-dollar facility, and we have to have this. And that. actually, you don't. And a lot of the equipment that you have already. So, do you take the time to to, to break it all down? I think I hit it all, but did I miss anything? No, so I think the other thing, which I was just talking to a lot of people, I know I talked to Jason about it, is when you're that lower level supervisor, your latitude is this big, and every step it gets smaller and smaller. And then when you're finally the chief, your latitude is about this big, and your timeline in the job is two to four years. You're gonna almost can't do anything. And a lot of them make the mistake of, well, I can do anything I want. Technically, no. You got contract that says you can do this, and you can't do that. You got written orders, just you, you, Then there's budget. There's stuff that, there's nothing budget. And so you're gonna put stuff that, in, that you're gonna do, it's not gonna happen for three years. So they don't have the, the scope to change the, the climate, your command climate, but, but you at that level, you do. Now let me change another story. I got a book upstairs, I was gonna bring it down here. It's called, If Germany Attacks. It was written, it was published in the United States in 1940, uh, it was actually written in England like in the early 30s. It goes back to, this is what it was, during World War One. You know, a, bunch, a, a bunch of French officers, company grade officers, captains, wrote a paper because they, the trench warfare was so much worse than anybody expected. And this whole idea of talking about a, a catastrophic event, A, a uh, what's that book I'm reading now? Uh, a black swan. I mean, it's, it's, this is a black swan event. They didn't prepare for this. So they're saying they wanted to change the tactics for a deliberate defense. And they wrote this paper. So when the Germans went over and took those lines, they found these papers, they translated it. Their officers started reading it. They said, you know, this is really smart. The French general says, "No, know, we're in charge. We, we make all the decisions. You're captains, you're idiots. You don't know what you're doing. The Germans, you know, so these young German officers, they write up the same paper and go, This is pretty smart stuff the French are talking about. I think we should do this. The German general in charge, he didn't believe it for two more years of casualties. And then it was like, You know, I, I'm thinking more and more that that's probably some smart stuff. So they, they created it and then for this interwar period from World War I to World War II, it's now our doctrine. Most people don't know where it comes from, but that's where it comes from. But it isn't just that. This is a great book, it just all lies it all out, but it's for everything. These ideas don't come from, up, from top down, they come from bottom up. Bottom up by leaders just like you that are looking at a problem, because the people in charge, they don't have the time to do that. You're training institutions, they don't have the time to do it. You're in the field, you're dealing with these things, what you wanna do is come up with a way that you incorporate these. This is our SOP for doing this. This is, you know, whatever that is, you start solidifying that, then people start, you become a go-to guy. And they start going and say, hey, how are you guys handling this, or handling that? And you say, this this is why we did it. We We were using this tool, Guess what? We found it doesn't work. Or it doesn't work in these situations. So uh, there's so many aspects to it. And is that the real issues of what the job is about? The answer is yes. And does that help with your morale? Yeah. And what's great is the coolest thing you can have is when you stop, you know, and have a beer, or you hear your guys talking to the other guys, they go, well, this is how we do it. You know, well, in our team, we do this. You know what I mean? And I'll tell you the other thing. Radio etiquette. I mean, that's something to talk about every single day. As a pilot, uh, it trains. They can't fly that aircraft if they get their heart read up. So they got to keep it nice. like the, they, they, they just can't do it. So they intensely, the thing is, making that diaphragm and that radio, if you're screaming and swearing and yelling, they know you're screaming and yelling. So they have no idea what you're talking about. But the model of professionalism is you're as calm as can be image comes out and you very succinctly you get the message out you've got to practice that and you get and you do that with your guys where you compliment them and then so the other thing which I thought was a great tool we have this thing we call meritorious mass you know it's a little uh, you know uh, honorable mention forms we type up I would type up three four five of those every night before I went home and push them in and I would go bribe the, the, the secretary the boss's secretary, whatever you know, it was flowers or coffee or key, whatever it was, to get them typed and signed. So in the next day, I could go to roll call, read them, you know what I mean, and give attaboys for all the things they're doing because the, those attaboys are more important than any off shits. And then I'm gonna give you a, a little trick about off shits. I've done this for a long time. So the guy makes a mistake, and, and this, there's a couple parts of the story. Right? And this is a huge takeaway for this level of managers. You call, you praise in public, you hand out these awards, you say, last night there was blah, 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 and, you know, Mike did this great job, and here you go, and we all get And some guys say, you know, I don't like these things. You know, they tell you they don't like them, but they get them all at home on their, on their, on their wall. They get them all in a, in a book, so they keep all, so it really gets you more goodwill than you'll ever imagine. But occasionally guys mess up. And when they mess up, you call them in, just you and them, nobody else. You close the door, and just unload on them. And you just let them go, God damn it, don't you ever. Now they're going, and their lips just curl and their, their their feelings are hurt. And they think about it. And it dawns on them, well, he's, he's actually right. He didn't tell anybody else. He didn't do anything in writing. And I'm telling you, 100% of the time, they'll come back and say they're sorry. And I'll say, forget it, because I did. And now you did your job as a supervisor. You're a supervisor. I had never, ever, ever had had the that conversation two times with somebody. Whatever it is that they did, if you let them know, hey, that really, Whatever that thing, because a lot of times it's for their own safety or other people's safety. And so we forget that, that the art of supervision is supervising and you gotta communicate it. To not, not everybody else, you know. Then the other thing, if you gotta go a little bit farther, type the whole formal thing up, the charge sheet. Get the whole thing. I'm I'm saying typing, now it's computer. But you get the whole thing. Call them in, then hand it to them, and they're reading it. You can see they start trembling. Some of them start tearing up. And then they'll go like this. Do you really have to do this? And you go like this. No, don't make me have to do it. Same thing. So I just, there's so many aspects. Last story, and I, I was talking to to Jason I forgot of. And that's one of I love this story. It's just, I it was a company commander and we're, we're, we're getting, no, actually, I was, was a company commander and when I had a kid and he, he pissed hot the second time, which means we're gonna throw him out of the Marine Corps. Unequivocal, nothing, we're just going through the motions. And the way I would do the office hours is I bring everybody in. I bring in the kid, I bring his company commander, the XO, the platoon, the first sergeant, the gunny, the platoon, everybody's there. And this was a good kid, he's a, he's, a, he's a street kid, he's an inner city kid, and he screwed up. And he's being honest about, you know, it's all his fault, and he doesn't, you know. And I got a whole room of other people looking at me, shaking their head, going, Jimmy, you, you have no options. You have no options. All you can do is just sign the paper, and he's done. He is out. And I, I'm, I'm just, it's bothering me. I'm like, what's the right thing? So finally I looked at him, and I went, I went Franklin, I'm gonna do something, I got a room full of people telling me I can't do, and I got a room full of people that all stood up for you, you know, and you have to remember, because they're the ones that swung, you know. so I'm not signing this thing. I'm not throwing you out of the Marine Corps, and uh, don't make chumps of these people in this room. Two weeks later, Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. We got called up for the whole time of that year-long deployment, he was the hardest kid working kid in that unit. Every time I walked back him, I said, that was the best decision I ever made in my life. 25 years later, I went to a reunion. He walked in. He had a, a Marine Corps shirt on, a Marine Corps hat. He had a job as a technician working for like NBC News. He walked up to me and gave me a big hug. I have to tell you, I would have ruined his life. And so you, a lot of times, you got that in your head. These kids will make mistakes. And if you stick up for them, and you should, uh, that's, that. it, it goes, whatever, you, it comes back a thousandfold. And and they and they all remember that. And uh, I, I, when I became a commander, we'd do the same kind of disciplinary thing. I would go to watch on midnights, because a lot of them, they do they make you come in on days, on your day off, to, to, to uh, grieve it. I went, no, I'll go to midnights. So I go to midnights, I call, him. it's an old wagon guy. He spent, he's got 20, 30 years on the job. He knocked off a rear view mirror backing up in an alley. They want to give him a day or some nonsense. I called him and he's in his uniform. And, and, and just he gave him the story. I said, "Okay, I'm good with it." He went out, told that entire watch. He goes, "This is a great boss." He came on midnights. I mean, he, he tore it up. He, yeah, I mean, it's you've got the options to do those kind of things. And I'm telling you, it, it, it's worth its weight in gold. If you don't allow guys to... And I'm not telling you you should paddle them. I'm not at all. In fact, I'm, I'm the other way. If, whatever the standards are, you tell them this is the standards, and you make them you know, stand... You know, it'll actually exceed the standards on every single thing, if you set that tone for them. But you got to do it for yourself, too. You know what I mean? And uh, so it's a great question. Thanks. I apologize for talking so much.
0: (laughs) We have more time to talk, so if we want to wrap it up for today, thank you, everyone. Thank you, Jim, for being so generous with your knowledge. Jim imparted so much knowledge during that talk. What were your thoughts, Jason?
1: He just scratched the surface. Whoa. Whoa. He, he did. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So one thing I wanted to acknowledge is that, you know, oftentimes I find myself in these situations where you kind of look and you say one of these things is not like the other. And standing up there with Jim was one of those moments where I was trying to balance that in my mind. And when we started talking about Rick Riscola during the interview and I realized, wait, I've been carrying around this quote from this article for two years and revisiting it whenever I feel like I'm going through a challenging moment. And to hear that Jim carried that around with him as well, that story at least, it really, that was the boost of confidence that finally settled my nerves and said, okay, this is the right place. This is, this is where, where it's okay to be right now. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And, and I I will add this, uh, haven't, haven't known Jim now for 14 years Having served with him in some pretty tough places, having conferred with him at, at several critical and challenging decision points in my life. Jim is recently retired. He's been retired now from the Marine Corps for the better part of probably the past eight, eight years from Chicago Police Department just a few years. Because he's retired and because he's not leading in a formal sense, there's a side to Jim that's more visible now than it was previously. He's more emotional. Mm-hmm. He's not strictly in the business anymore of taking the fight to the enemy or protecting the mean streets of Chicago. And I think in in many ways he's coming to terms with four decades of of yeah. doing that. I get to see a different side of Jim than I was accustomed to seeing in Fallujah, and those who were in Annapolis got to see a, a very intimate and and vulnerable side of jim which really just speaks to to jim's depth totally and his uh all that he has experienced in in uh in life
0: with that we wrap up day one of the leadership under fire 2019 summit anything you want to add
1: it's it's a lot for a day right like you leave you're saturated you're excited about the next day but you're there's some fatigue these people jim and brendan and Jen, you, like you're in the cockpit with Jen, right? You're you're on East 178th Street with Brendan, and you're on patrol with with Jim. I mean, it, it's it's a lot to uh, to navigate.
0: It's a really good way. Of putting it.